Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. From the outside, the Yellow Deli looks like a relic preserved from the 70s. Its handwritten menu offers sandwiches like the Yellow Submarine and the Kingston Yoga Burger that convey an image of simpler times. But on the other side of the counter, members of a cult called the Twelve Tribes staff every position at the restaurant. They work without pay and are described by church elders as volunteers whose money is shared among all members of their community. The restaurant also serves as a recruiting station, luring people in with the promise of a simple life and a welcoming Christian community. Beneath the carefree facade of the 12 tribes lies a system rife with racism, homophobia, and accusations of child abuse. Followers are encouraged to strike their children with rods to prevent them from any sort of imaginative play. According to former church elders, this is done to break a child's will before the age of four, which the community believes is when a child's basic character has been formed. Followers are discouraged from communicating with the outside world and receiving medical treatment. Disobedient members can find themselves separated from their children, often across international borders. And most importantly, members must always obey the will of the cult's leader and super-apostle, Albert Jean Spriggs. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today we're going to take a deep dive into the Twelve Tribes cult, also known as Vine Christian Community, the Northeast Kingdom Community Church, and the Messianic Communities. Despite the attempts of authorities in multiple countries to rescue the cult's children, the Twelve Tribes continues to thrive to this day. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening.
Founded by Elbert Spriggs in 1972, the 12 Tribes community describes itself as a group trying to usher in the second coming and the return of Jesus Christ. Living without modern amenities like televisions or cell phones, they believe that they are the only true Christians and that all other Christian churches are controlled by the devil. They also believe that by strictly disciplining their children and breaking down their willpower and independence, they're saving their souls. The Twelve Tribes began as a small ministry for teenagers in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Today, the Twelve Tribes supposedly numbers over 3,000 people across as many as 50 countries, including France, Germany, Australia, and the UK. They're most well-known for their child abuse controversies, which contrast sharply with their seemingly benign Summer of Love-inspired Yellow Delis. In part one, we'll look at the founding of the Twelve Tribes, its leader, Albert Spriggs, and its early years. In part two, we'll examine the government's intervention into the cult and how the Twelve Tribes continues to this day. Elbert Eugene Spriggs was born in East Ridge, Tennessee in 1937. Perhaps because of his otherwise unremarkable background, one of the only available accounts of Spriggs' youth is on the Twelve Tribes website itself. According to the cult's biography, Spriggs' father raised him to be an upstanding Christian, attending church up to three times per week. Spriggs' father also employed corporal punishment, and spanked Spriggs when he misbehaved at school. But despite the strict discipline and religious upbringing, Spriggs fell in with the habits of his peers during his teenage years, drinking, smoking, and partying. Spriggs was plagued by guilt at his failure to live up to the standards his father had established. According to the 12 tribes, this guilt caused Spriggs to enter his first marriage at age 19 in 1957, but this marriage ended relatively quickly in 1960. Spriggs' high school prowess on the football field won him a university scholarship where he studied psychology. He was soon remarried in 1962. That same year, he was drafted into the Army after graduating from the University of Chattanooga. In the military, Spriggs performed psychological testing on new recruits. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. The Armed Forces Qualification Test, or AFQT, was an exam that all branches of the military used to screen new recruits. Its purpose was twofold. The test measured an applicant's ability to absorb military training and analyzed how useful that applicant could be. This military post may have been Spriggs' first opportunity to see himself as a sort of gatekeeper, someone who could determine the future and direction of other people. Spriggs stayed in the Army for one year and returned to civilian life in 1963. He became a high school teacher and guidance counselor. During this time, his wife gave birth to their first and only son, Tyron Eugene Spriggs. Again, Spriggs was in a position where he could direct and influence other people. At some point between 1963 and 1966, he accepted a job at Dixie Yarns, a company his father had worked for, where he managed personnel. Spriggs was in charge of hiring for the company's new plant. 
This likely gave Spriggs the opportunity to hone the talents he had learned in the Army. He could now hire and select people based on their utility to the company. But Spriggs reportedly felt guilty about his fast-lane executive lifestyle. Though no additional detail is provided in his official biography, we can presume that this lifestyle may have involved the same vices that troubled him in his younger years. Spriggs' father seems to have been aware of Spriggs' difficulties staying on the straight and narrow. On his deathbed in 1966, he warned his son to get his heart right with God. But Spriggs continued to feel unmoored. His second marriage came to an end in 1968, when unsatisfied with his life as an executive, he left his family behind to join a travel company as a tour director. After abandoning his wife and child in 1968, Spriggs quickly formed a new family. He remarried a year later in 1969. It's not surprising that Spriggs was able to quickly find new partners after his marriages. A former football player and boxer, Spriggs kept himself in good athletic condition and looked younger than his age. He was also described as a charismatic man who had a presence about him. People always noticed him when he entered a room. But despite his new marriage, Spriggs' life was still in turmoil. His career as a tour director was short-lived, and tensions became fraught between Spriggs and his new wife. So he decided to take time to visit some family members in California. En route, Spriggs stopped in Alabama to visit a friend. This friend ran a carnival and offered Spriggs the opportunity to run one of the booths there. It was at this job that Spriggs reported hearing God ask him, quote, is this what I created you for? End quote. Not long after the carnival in 1970, Spriggs completed his move to California. But it's unclear whether his third wife accompanied him. In the Sunshine State, the Jesus movement was at its zenith. As you may remember from previous cults episodes, the Jesus movement was a Christian evangelical movement that swept across Europe and America in the late 1960s and early 1970s. It harkened back to simple living and advocated a more informal form of worship. Its followers called themselves the Jesus people, and they emphasized a gentle God who loved and healed followers. The 12 tribes incorporated some of the imagery of the Jesus movement, as well as the 1967 Summer of Love, from the flowers decorating the Yellow Deli's menus to the tribe's rainbow-decorated garden bus. But the good vibes and funshine of the Jesus movement didn't help Spriggs and his third wife get along. The pair were divorced by 1971, just two years after they married. Later that year, while walking on a beach in Carpinteria near Santa Barbara, California, Spriggs rededicated his life to Jesus. Though he had been a practicing Christian beforehand, Spriggs saw this as a revelation that his purpose was to bring people to Christ. Energized by this newfound sense of purpose, he spent the next two years preaching in Santa Barbara and Jackson Hole, Wyoming, in Jackson Hole, Spriggs met Marsha Ann Duvall, an atheist, and converted her to Christianity. The two were married by 1972. We don't have any details about this alleged conversion process, but if this story is true, it's clear how persuasive Spriggs can be. That same year, Spriggs and Marsha traveled to Chattanooga, Tennessee, 
where Spriggs joined a Presbyterian church. Presbyterianism is a branch of Protestant Christianity. Led by a council of elders, Presbyterians believe that the Bible is God's word communicated to mankind through prophets and apostles. It's possible that Spriggs' ministry followed a similar theology, and he may have carried these core tenets with him as he fleshed out the beliefs of the 12 tribes. That same year, in 1972, Spriggs and Marsha began operating a coffee house out of their Tennessee home on Vine Street that they named The Lighthouse. And it was in that coffee house that Spriggs began preaching to local teenagers. He dubbed this ministry The Light Brigade. Like the Alfred Tennyson poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. The reference to the poem is probably not a coincidence. In the poem, a lightly armed group of soldiers surges fearlessly through the valley of death. Spriggs utilized this highly charged biblical reference, likely to create a strong positive image of the group for the teens who joined. The Vine Street House soon became a communal living house for disenfranchised and troubled teens. And the coffee house was successful enough that a year later, in May of 1973, Spriggs and his wife opened the first Yellow Deli in Chattanooga. Former church leaders later admitted that Spriggs stole the name from a restaurant in Jackson Hole. Spriggs used the Yellow Deli as a way to spread his message to outsiders and recruit new followers. The people who worked in the Yellow Deli were followers of Spriggs' burgeoning ministry, Rather than being paid wages, they worked in exchange for room and board. With no paychecks to cut, Spriggs was able to reap a massive profit from the operation. Soon, he opened new delis in Georgia and Alabama. As Spriggs opened new delis, his following grew. In 1974, three people joined the operation and became its spokespeople. James Howell, David Jones, and Charles Eddie Wiseman. Eddie Wiseman was 26 when he joined Spriggs' group. He had gone to college but became heavily involved in drugs. He felt he had no direction in his life until he discovered Spriggs and his teachings. He quickly became Spriggs' right-hand man and second-in-command. Then, on January 12, 1975, Spriggs and his followers went to their Presbyterian church and found it closed so its congregants could stay home and watch the Super Bowl. Spriggs was disheartened. He saw this as a sign that traditional Christian churches allowed the secular world to take priority over worshiping God. This moment marked a sea change for Spriggs and the beginning of his schism with mainstream Christianity. He would now create his own church, one where he would make the rules. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now the story continues. In 1975, Albert Spriggs founded the Vine Christian Community Church, later known as the Twelve Tribes, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. By creating this new church, Spriggs was separating from mainstream Christianity for good. He organized meetings at a park near his home on Sundays. Please note that this is in no way related to the Vineyard Christian Fellowship, a collection of 2,400 non-denominational churches across almost 100 countries. Spriggs called his services critical mass 
Spriggs described critical mass as an instance where the Holy Spirit encouraged everyone in attendance to pray spontaneously and simultaneously. But there's no record of this successfully happening. After starting services in the park, Spriggs believed that he and his followers, quote, stopped going to church and started being the church, end quote. This concept of being the church eventually became the backbone of the 12 tribes, as it currently exists today. In Spriggs' theology, church wasn't a place or an organization. It was a lifestyle that always put the Bible's teachings at its forefront. Spriggs wanted followers to feel like their version of Christianity was separate and distinct from mainstream forms of Christianity. He began referring to Christianity as the harlot described in Revelation. The harlot, more commonly referred to as the whore of Babylon, is a mythological figure tied to the apocalypse. She's associated with the Antichrist and described as being drunk on the blood of Christian martyrs. In other words, Spriggs wasn't a fan of modern Christianity. But Spriggs told his followers that by following his unique interpretation of the Bible, they would learn how they personally could help usher in the return of Jesus Christ. Like other cult leaders we've studied, Spriggs seems to have employed the sort of thought reform tactics described by psychologist Robert Lifton. He was creating a clear us versus them worldview in order to isolate his followers from outside influences. Melinda Horton joined the 12 tribes in 1975 for 15 months. After she left the cult, she spoke to a reporter about her experiences. Melinda had grown up in a Christian home, but like many young adults in the mid-1970s, she felt conflicted between her spiritual upbringing and the life she was living. When she went to a Vine community meeting, she was instantly attracted to the group. She attended meetings almost every day for the next six weeks. The other members began to pressure her to move in with them. As we've discussed in previous episodes, cults commonly try to isolate followers and separate members from their families. Psychiatrist and cult expert Robert Lifton refers to this technique as milieu control. In his seminal book on thought reform, Lifton describes it as one of the eight methods a group like a cult can use to align members' thinking with that of the group. Melinda's parents noticed her personality change, reporting that she spent all her free time reading the Bible. One Sunday, they forbade their daughter from attending Spriggs' weekly services in the nearby park. Melinda was furious and told her parents that they were agents of Satan. Real Christians, she said, would allow her to go. Melinda left the house and was baptized by Spriggs in Chickamauga Lake before deciding to move into one of the group's community houses. The Vine community dispatched two members to collect Melinda's clothing from her parents' house, but her father stopped them. Melinda was outraged. Spriggs had convinced her that it was God's will that she should move in with the members of the Vine community, but her parents were keeping it from happening. An hour later, Spriggs himself showed up at the house. Melinda's mother was quick to confront him. If young people were living in Christian homes, why remove them? Spriggs responded that he could tell Melinda's parents were not Christian, going so far as to say, quote, it's because of mothers like you that I have to rescue girls like Melinda, end quote. 
Spriggs brought Melinda to a community home that was reserved for the young, single women of the group. She slept on a bunk bed in a room occupied by other girls, shared toiletries, and was given old clothes to dress in. Her parents came to visit her when she worked at the Yellow Deli in Chattanooga, a restaurant Spriggs had opened where members worked without pay. But the cult was quick to react, relocating her to a community in Georgia with its own Yellow Deli. This is another example of the community using milieu control to keep Melinda isolated from her family. Melinda worked 11 and 12-hour days at the Yellow Deli. She was allowed to see her parents on a couple of holidays, but she usually had to be under the supervision of other members when she saw them. She was warned that Satan was using her parents to poison her mind. Eventually, around 1976, her parents hired Ted Patrick, a self-proclaimed cult deprogrammer. Cult deprogramming is a controversial practice intended to assist a cult member with changing their beliefs. Deprogramming used to involve kidnapping and incarcerating members against their will, though these tactics are now illegal. Ted Patrick was known as the father of deprogramming and invented the practice after his own son was approached by a cult called the Children of God, which listeners may recall from our episodes on that cult. Patrick was not a psychologist or psychiatrist. Instead, he claimed to base the techniques on his own life experiences and conversations he had with, quote, witches, warlocks, and healers, end quote. As part of his technique, Patrick locked Melinda in a house with him, refusing to allow her to exit. Patrick barraged her with arguments for five hours, focusing on how she had been post-hypnotically led to depend on the Vine community. He explained that the sacrifices she had been encouraged to make were not for God, but for Spriggs. He eventually persuaded her to leave the cult. Meanwhile, by 1976, Spriggs was busy opening more of his profitable restaurants. One of them was called the Areopagus. It was named after a landmark in Greece where St. Paul delivered one of his biblical sermons. The Areopagus restaurant was promoted as a place for all Christians to gather and offer each other support. It was at this restaurant later that year that Spriggs crossed paths with another religious movement called the New Covenant Apostolic Order, or the NCAO. The NCAO was an entity created by Peter Gilquist in 1973. Gilquist, who had attended the Dallas Theological Seminary and completed his graduate studies at Wheaton College, believed modern Christianity had strayed too far from its roots and taken a wrong turn. He founded the NCAO to bring people together in the communal worship. Given Spriggs' belief that modern Christianity was flawed, it's no wonder that he found theological common ground with the NCAO. Members believed it was their mission to build new churches. They felt they maintained a new relationship with the Holy Spirit that was lacking in the organized Christian church. These builders of the new church would be called apostles, and Spriggs was anointed with the term. Traditionally, the term apostle is used in Christianity to refer to one who teaches the word of God. So when Spriggs was given that title, he likely felt empowered, and his writings soon incorporated his elevated status. In 1977, a year after opening the Areopagus and meeting the members of the NCAO, 
Spriggs wrote a paper where he insisted that obedience is the only way to truly honor God. A true follower could not have even a hint of independence. He would later write in one of his publications, quote, Honoring those who are over you, those who are honorable, especially parents, releases a special hormone from your brain, permeating your body, that gives long life. If you don't do this, that hormone dries up and your bones dry up." End quote. It's worth noting the irony that Spriggs was responsible for isolating so many of his followers from their parents. And despite claiming that he wanted his followers to honor their parents, Spriggs also wrote that the only way to attain God's grace was to sever connections with family that might hold them back. The only person Spriggs really wanted his followers to honor was himself. During this time in the mid to late 70s, Spriggs and his operations received 501D status from the IRS, a designation reserved for for-profit businesses with a religious purpose and common treasury. This allowed all of the profits from the Yellow Deli, the Areopagus, and any future businesses to be funneled into the coffers of Spriggs' church. Despite their newfound wealth, the 12 tribes still held services outdoors at the nearby Warner Park. Spriggs, now proudly calling himself an apostle, began baptizing followers in Chickamauga Lake. But Spriggs was not an ordained minister, and his baptisms drew criticism from nearby Presbyterian church leaders. As umbrage grew towards Spriggs' community, now approximately 150 people strong, people who had left the 12 tribes started talking openly about their experiences. According to a pair of articles published in the Chattanooga Times, Spriggs' followers worked 80 to 90 hours a week at the delis without pay. Spriggs' second-in-command, Eddie Wiseman, told the Chattanooga Times that the long hours that members were expected to work at the Yellow Deli were proof that followers would give up everything for Jesus Christ. But as we've learned in previous episodes of Cults, working followers too hard and keeping them in a perpetual state of exhaustion is an effective way for leaders to sap their willpower. This prevents followers from being able to think critically or independently and forces them to rely on their leader for guidance. These articles also reported on the church's practicing of taking in vulnerable young people and requiring them to donate all cash and possessions to the church and isolating its members from the outside world. One former convert reported, quote, they teach you that if you leave, God will strike you dead. We couldn't question anything. Any doubts that came into our minds were from Satan, end quote. It's pretty clear that Spriggs didn't want his followers to think for themselves. Another way that Spriggs continued to isolate his followers and make them dependent on him was by requiring members like Melinda to live in community houses. These were regular single-family homes in Chattanooga purchased or rented by the 12 tribes. But each single-family home held up to 40 people. When the Chattanooga Times interviewed Eddie Wiseman and two other church members about this tactic, they had an excuse ready. The trio insisted that the world outside of their community was the territory of Satan, and that the church was a refuge. 
If a follower truly believed in the message of the church, they would give themselves entirely to living among their spiritual brothers and sisters in the communal houses. This is yet another example of the us versus them mentality perpetuated by cult leaders. Robert Lifton noted that many cult leaders employ a technique he describes as the dispensing of existence. This means that the cult leader alone gets to decide who is saved. By setting up the rest of the world as Satan's domain, Spriggs was forcing members to rely on him alone for their spiritual comfort and salvation. In five short years, Spriggs had grown its coffeehouse ministry into a multi-state network of restaurants and community homes. That expansion would pale in comparison to the growth the 12 tribes soon experienced. And with every new route Spriggs put down, he grew richer and more powerful. By 1978, Spriggs had opened six delis, and the church was reported to own approximately $100,000 worth of real estate. But as their financial holdings grew, the 12 tribes attracted lots of unwanted attention. An unusual child custody case between James and Wilma Castleberry thrust the 12 tribes into the spotlight. The Castleberries, neither of whom were members of the 12 tribes, were going through a separation. Wilma was having trouble finding a job and paying rent, so she asked her husband and former mother-in-law to care for their six children in the meantime. But rather than fulfill his end on the agreement, James Castleberry offered his children to the custodianship of the 12 tribes. He later said that he had a personal friendship with some of the people who worked at the Yellow Deli. After the 12 tribes took custody of the six children, ages 7 to 12, they were split up between three different yellow delis in different states. Wilma searched for her children for the next six months before a friend of hers spotted Wilma's eldest son working at one of the restaurants. Once Wilma learned of her children's involvement, she got the authorities involved in an effort to get her children back. But Spriggs Church wasn't going to return her children without a fight. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to cults. By 1977, Albert Spriggs' 12 tribes was under investigation for hiding the six children of Wilma Castleberry in yellow delis across the country. It took a court order to force them to relinquish the children to their mother. A witness testified that the children had been put to work at the various yellow delis, washing dishes until as late as 11 p.m. As word began to spread that the yellow delis were connected to a cult, the president of nearby Bryan College declared the yellow deli off-limits to its students. The Tennessee Temple and Covenant College soon followed suit, and local Methodist minister Jesse Warwick began posting signs bearing anti-cult slogans on his own church property to protest Spriggs' operation. Not exactly a ringing endorsement. From the summer of 1976 through 1980, Ted Patrick, the controversial cult deprogrammer, was also busy trying to get members to leave the cult. He eventually worked with eight members of Spriggs' community as part of his deprogramming efforts. Joanna and Kirsten Nielsen, twins who had joined Spriggs' group and were taken to meet Patrick by their concerned parents in December of 1979, 
were vocal about the horrific beatings that children underwent in the cult under the guise of discipline. A couple named Charles and Tommy Brown, who had lived with the cult for five months, also came forward to talk to the press about their experience. Tommy explained that she and her husband left the group after seeing church members beat children with wooden rods. They were hit for minor offenses, like being inattentive or asking for seconds at dinner. Others who visited family members in the cult noted that they seemed dirty and malnourished. It's possible that the cult's practice of child abuse started as a result of Spriggs' own upbringing. Spriggs publicly talked about the corporeal punishment he received at school and at home when he misbehaved. He argued that the spankings he received were because his coach, his teacher, and his father cared about him. But in a study published in 2001, Doctors Pears and Capaldi observed that adults who had been physically abused as children were more likely to perpetuate abusive behaviors toward children. Sprigg's decision to refer to this behavior as discipline can be described under Lifton's principles of thought reform as loaded language. By choosing words like discipline with neutral or positive connotations, He's using semantics to make beating children sound necessary and well-intentioned. A church elder defended the practice by citing the biblical verse, Proverbs 13.24, quote, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them, end quote. This elder insisted the children were never struck hard enough to cause bruising. Visitors to the cult reported children were inhibited, didn't play, and were unusually quiet. Spriggs' followers thought this was proof that their methods of discipline were working. However, according to the Mayo Clinic, this kind of withdrawn behavior in children is often a sign of abuse. The citizens of Chattanooga were shocked by ex-cult members' tales of abuse. But the public's fears reached a fever pitch in late 1978 after the Jonestown Massacre. As we discussed in our episodes about Jim Jones and his cult, The People's Temple, the Jonestown Massacre occurred after Jones instructed his followers to poison themselves with cyanide. Over 900 people died. The citizens of Chattanooga feared that the cult in their own backyard might follow the same path. As scrutiny from the outside world grew, Spriggs decided he needed to move his cult somewhere more isolated. He informed his disciples that he believed there was nobody left in Chattanooga who was preaching the gospel. It was time for them to leave. In 1979, Spriggs and his wife sold almost all of the 12 tribes' properties and businesses, including the Yellow Delis, and relocated their community to Island Pond, Vermont, where a small branch of the Vine Church had already been established. They renamed themselves the Northeast Kingdom Community Church. In an effort to fit into the quiet dairy farm community, Spriggs and his followers opened a new restaurant called the Common Sense Cafe. Spriggs' restaurants served an important purpose for 12 tribes. Not only did they provide consistent income, thanks to members who worked there without pay, but they were one of the few places where outsiders and members came in contact. 
This enabled Spriggs to use the restaurants as recruiting stations where staff could sing the praises of the community to unsuspecting patrons. And if a patron decided to join, their possessions and bank accounts were added to Spriggs' personal coffers. Spriggs didn't just own restaurants. He also made sure the cult owned a number of community-owned farms that provided the ingredients for the restaurants. The group also opened a bakery, a plumbing and heating company, a print shop, and other cottage industries. But despite the cult's financial success, members were expected to live without luxuries. They dressed modestly and shunned a number of modern conveniences like television and radio. By this time in 1979, the theology of the community evolved. Spriggs began appropriating elements of the Torah, and he renamed his community after the 12 tribes of Israel. He also sought to separate his beliefs from the rest of Christianity by referring to Jesus as Yahshua, a variant of his Hebrew name, and instructed his followers to all take Hebrew names as well. Spriggs himself took the name Yonek, meaning a tender shoot or sprig, a clumsy play on his own name. His second-in-command, Eddie Wiseman, adopted the name Hakam, or wise man. But in addition to appropriating elements of the Torah, Spriggs also began incorporating racist and homophobic beliefs into his philosophy in 1979. And one of the most controversial of Spriggs' teachings reflected the 12 tribes' ultimate purpose, to bring about the 144,000, a seminal group of devoted followers discussed in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation describes the 144,000 as a group of virgin males who have been redeemed from mankind and have not defiled themselves with women. Their spiritual purity would allegedly usher in the return of Yeshua, or Jesus. Spriggs taught that children needed to be disciplined or scourged in order to maintain their spiritual purity, citing a verse from the book of Proverbs that reads, quote, Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die." End quote. Spriggs reportedly emphasized the word beat. Instruction manuals on child-rearing published by Spriggs, which are still available today on the cult's website, tell followers to discipline children with reeds. The manuals claim that, quote, the blueness of the wound drives away all evil, end quote. In other words, a child is not well-disciplined unless his punishment leaves him with intense bruises. According to Michael Painter, a former high-ranking member of the Twelve Tribes, Spriggs taught that a child's will had to break by the time they were four. If not, the child was lost because their basic character had been formed. Any adult member of the cult was permitted to discipline the cult's young, and Spriggs taught that a child should thank them for the beating. A broken child followed these instructions and submitted to the will of the cult's adults. A lost child resisted submission. According to Spriggs, any deviance from the cult's prescribed rules could interfere in the entire community's relationship with God. Therefore, any behavior that mimics Satan's world outside the community Behaviors such as playing or fantasizing, or in one instance, making an airplane noise, resulted in a beating, 
those kids who grew up under the cult's watchful eyes later reported that they were never given the freedom to act like children. While the cult was always secretive and restricted the extent to which members were allowed to interact with the outside world, efforts to isolate were ramped up in the 1980s in the face of increased accusations of abuse. The cult began to homeschool their children rather than allowing them to attend public school. Outside medical care was forbidden. According to James Powell, a former high-ranking cult member, this was to prevent medical professionals from seeing signs of child abuse. The sentiment was also echoed by Vermont State Trooper Kathy Cunningham, who admitted to Newsweek that the tribe had taken away all the normal methods by which child abuse would be detected. But Spriggs' prohibition of medical care, wrapped in the teaching that illness came from sin and could be treated by prayer and confession, led to the death of at least four infants in Island Pond. Stillborn children were also common within the communities due to the lack of medical care. The 12 tribes also relocated children across state and federal lines in an effort to frustrate parents who were looking for their children. One six-year-old was retrieved from a community house in Spain in 1983 and brought back home to the U.S. He was reported to have 15 permanent scars across his buttocks from the beatings he received. And this wasn't the only instance of reported child abuse or child abduction. A child custody case in Island Pond, Vermont, between a former church member and his wife, who was still a Spriggs follower, made its way into the paper, accompanied by stories of child abuse within the secretive community. Another child abduction case occurred after a man named Joseph Heflin had a daughter who joined the 12 tribes. She married one of the community's elders and moved to Island Pond. They had a child together. When Heflin's daughter eventually left the group, she took her child with her. But her child was allegedly soon abducted by members of the church. Heflin's daughter declined to report the abduction to police, but Heflin was furious at the loss of his grandchild. In 1980, when Spriggs and three of his followers, including second-in-command Wiseman, returned to Chattanooga to fundraise, Heflin confronted and physically attacked them. Heflin was later tried for the assault against Spriggs, but we aren't aware of any follow-up on the part of law enforcement to investigate Heflin's claim of child abduction. That same year, in 1980, a couple who left the 12 tribes revealed the extent to which Spriggs' power had grown. Inside the community, his word was considered law, and anyone who dared to question it was treated as questioning the word of God. The elders executed his will without hesitation. In 1982, Newsweek brought the 12 tribes into the national spotlight. Beginning with a brief description of yet another child custody battle, the article highlighted the allegations of child abuse and law enforcement's inability to get involved. The article highlighted the deaths of three infants in the community. Spriggs taught that most illness came from sin, so his community of followers had little reason to invest in anything more than a makeshift medical facility. According to local officials, one of the deceased infants had actually suffered from spinal meningitis, but the 12 tribes misdiagnosed it as an ear infection. Child abuse reports continued to surface as members defected from the community in the year following the Newsweek article. In 1983, 
Eddie Wiseman was charged with assault for beating a little girl named Darlin Church. Darlin's father, Roland, called a local nurse who was known for her opposition to the 12 tribes. Roland informed the nurse that Wiseman stripped Darlin to her underwear and had beaten her for seven hours. Roland brought his daughter to the emergency room, where the nurse confirmed 24 linear scars across her legs. The charge against Wiseman, coupled with the numerous child custody cases, spurred Vermont Attorney General John Easton into action. He summoned seven of the elders from Island Pond into family court and instructed them to tell the court which children lived in their home. Each elder refused to comply with the instructions. A few days later, District Judge Joseph Wolchick signed a warrant authorizing police to look for signs of child abuse. Yet instead of weakening the cult and saving the children from abuse, this investigation would make the 12 tribes stronger than ever. Next week, we'll investigate how governments around the world attempted to rescue children from the 12 tribes. Some intervention efforts were successful, but others failed completely. We'll also uncover how the 12 tribes has managed to weather multiple child abuse scandals and continue to this day. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday as we continue to investigate the 12 tribes. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Sean Waugh and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>